I just got back from several days of visiting family in Mississippi and then in Kansas City visiting my own extended family and then visiting with in-laws for about 10 days or so. And so it's as good a time as any to start a month-long worship series on the subject of conflict. Um, <laughs> I kid and, and I don't. Well, actually, we will be talking about family before this month is done. But um, we, this month of August, as we are getting back into the routines and rhythms that come with the school year for many of us, or maybe just um, coming off of the summer vacation highs, or, or however your life may be seasonally changing, even as the weather does not, um, I, I imagine that there may be some ways in which conflict shows up once again. And really, conflict is one of those ever-present things, whether we choose to acknowledge it or not, as uh, my wife, who's also a, a pastor in the United Methodist Church, and whenever we are uh, conducting, you know, premarital pastoral counseling, we'll frequently tell couples, you know, the mark of a healthy relationship is, is not the absence of conflict, but the ability to handle it in a healthy way. Sometimes we believe this lie that the best relationships are those that have no conflict, when really those can be relationships that have a lot hiding underneath the surface. And so let's talk about conflict this month in, in different ways. Conflict with each other, conflict perhaps with God, conflict within ourselves, and then conflict with those whom we love the most. Um, today we're going to talk about conflict in its most general interpersonal sense. And we're going to take a look at the Gospel of Matthew beginning in chapter 18, verse 15. If you're someone who likes to follow along, you can find your way there now. Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. And at this point in Matthew's gospel, Jesus is casting a vision for this thing that doesn't yet exist called the church, this Christian community that's going to be rooted in living by a, a, a love and a law that Jesus is teaching them. And uh, it, like I said, it's not something that exists yet, so he's kind of casting vision for this thing that he knows will exist but isn't there at that time. And specifically in, in chapter 18, he's getting down to the nuts and bolts because we're getting towards the end of Matthew's gospel. He knows that um, crucifixion and death and resurrection are just around the corner. And so he decides to sort of speak plainly about what it means to be in community with each other. And one thing that Jesus knows is that where two or more are gathered, not only is God's presence there, but conflict is sure to be there as well. He knows that even though it's this community that's meant to be rooted in love, it frequently will look like less than that. And the mark of Christian, of Christian community survival will not be their ability to avoid conflict, but rather their ability to resolve it well with one another. And so with that in mind, let's take a look at chapter 18, beginning in verse 15. Jesus says this, If your brother or sister sins against you, go and correct them when you are alone together. If they listen to you, then you've won over your brother or sister. But if they won't listen... Take with you one or two others, so that every word may be established by the mouth of two or three witnesses. But if they still won't pay attention, report it to the church. If they won't pay attention even to the church, treat them as you would a Gentile or tax collector. I assure you that whatever you fasten on earth will be fastened in heaven. Whatever you loosen on earth will be loosened in heaven." Again, I assure you that if two of you agree on earth about anything you ask, then my Father who is in heaven will do it for you. For where two or three are gathered in my name, I'm there with them. For the word of God in scripture and for the word of God among us and for the word of God within us, let us say thanks be to God. 
So there's another version of this sermon that could sound very self-help-y. In fact, I know that version of the sermon exists all over the place. Four simple rules to have all your conflicts resolved. Jesus teaches us the way, right? Just follow this four-step process and everything will work out. Um, when we try to treat the Bible as a prescriptive text, it will get us in trouble, my friends. Because while, yes, Jesus lays out a fairly simple four-step process, notice that even in this process, there is the very real possibility that everything falls apart. Right? He says, you can try this, and then this, and then this, and then they may still not want to resolve with you. And so I think it's important when we're reading Scripture, especially the Scripture that is, seems to be telling us, well, just follow these simple rules and life will work out. That's not typically the way that scripture is designed to be read nor to be used. So, more frequent, so much more frequently, my sense is that scripture is trying to communicate values to us. Yes, sometimes through things that sound prescriptive, but if we take a look at these four steps, so to speak, and we take a deeper look at the values that they're communicating, I imagine what we'll be left with is something that feels more applicable in whatever our circumstances may be when maybe this simple four-step process doesn't feel as realistic, yeah? So this is not a roadmap to having a nice church. Um, in fact, I don't know that Jesus wants us to have a nice church. Some of us have grown up or gone to nice churches where everything was smiles and sunshine, but underneath it was anything but. Um, I think what Jesus is asking us to do is to be a church that courageously confronts conflict and allows for it to transform us in a powerful way. So the values I see communicated, the first one is this, honesty. When we are attempting to resolve conflict with one another, honesty has got to be central to the way that we move forward. If your brother or sister sins against you, he says, go and correct them when you are alone together. The value of honesty to me confronts three very common practices that we have when facing interpersonal conflict. And that would be to, uh, to gossip, to triangulate, and to vent. Now, maybe some of those sound worse than others, but let me break that down for you. Gossip is the easiest one for us to identify as unhelpful, right? Um, nowadays, we call it spilling the tea, uh, if you're on TikTok or on, on social media. But the idea that if I was a youth pastor right now, I would uh, have us all stop and play a game of telephone. If you don't know what that game is, uh, it's where you all line up in a line around the room, and I whisper something fairly simple in someone's ear, you know, uh, call Gary next Tuesday. And then by the time it makes its way all around the room, someone says, oh, yeah, what I heard them say was uh, hippopotamus eats uh, pistachios. And you're like, what? How did it turn into that? That? Well, because it went through the telephone around the room as each person whispered in each other's ears. And then I would be the cool youth pastor with the soul patch that would say, and kids, that's what gossip's like, right? And, and it's a good illustration because that is what gossip is like, um, where we start telling stories to one another and we hear things through the grapevine and maybe they're accurate or, or maybe they're not, but what we're not doing is we're not resolving the issue at hand and instead we're kind of engaging in this really... Uh, insidious game that stands to harm people in the process because sometimes what comes out the end of the telephone is rather silly and sometimes it's what comes out is rather harmful and I'm saying this as someone who honestly I love gossip 
if I'm being really, really uh, vulnerable with you right now. You may be surprised here that pastors, we love it, right? Um, when we get together with our clergy colleagues, oh, did you hear what so-and-so did at whatever, whatever? Oh my gosh, can't believe it. There's a really sinful part of me that loves to hear the telephone game make its way around the room. And yet when I read something like this, I feel convicted because I realize that what I'm doing is I'm inviting misinterpretation and that really ultimately I'm inviting harm. Gossip, that's pretty easy to name as something that's not helpful. Triangulation, it's easy for us to say like, oh yeah, I know theoretically that's bad, but we do it all the time, right? We do it all of the time. Now, hear me clearly, it is perfectly good to have somebody in your life whom you trust to turn to in times of conflict, to serve as a sounding board, or to serve as, as something of counsel for you. Now, that person needs to actually want to help you resolve conflict and not just be the boxing coach in the corner of the ring going, all right, this time give them a right hook. You know, that's not really the, the hope there. Um, but triangulation so frequently looks like me turning to someone else, hoping that they'll do my work for me. Maybe that they'll tell me that I don't need to do anything at all and I can just continue being who I am. Or, or maybe that I hope they'll go and talk to the person as an intermediary because I really don't want to actually have that hard conversation. I'm hoping they'll just sort of take care of it on my behalf. And, and I'll tell you, triangulation runs pretty rampant in churches. Um, I don't know if this is news to you. Um, but whenever someone comes to me and, and they'll say, you know, Scott, um, I'm hearing people are saying, that's my favorite phrase, people are saying, people. It could be like two people or like the entire state of Texas. I have no idea, right? People are saying. And, and while, yes, there can be a moment when having anonymous feedback can be helpful for people, most of the time what that's doing is not allowing the actual connection to happen. And so my response will simply be, um, if it matters enough to them that they speak with you about this, I need it to matter enough to them that they speak with me about this. Now, that might make your, your stomach kind of churn, but the reality is stepping uh, into challenging conversations is nine times out of the ten the only way that we're going to resolve what's before us. And so that triangulation piece that's so easy to fall into, it's also the thing that can prevent us from resolving conflict so frequently. And then lastly, venting. Now, this one I was actually surprised to learn more about this week. Because on its surface, we think venting as sort of pop culture term is like a good thing, right? It's important to vent. It's important to let things out so you don't blow up. And the reason we think that is because um, back in the day, Sigmund Freud developed this sort of theory of catharsis. And he, he actually referred to it as um, hydraulic, the hydraulic model of unexpressed emotions. The idea that if we don't express our emotions in a healthy way, that we'll end up getting steamed up until we explode, right? So he said, well, you have to express your emotions. And that part is true. That part is true. What's not true is that venting alone helps us to feel better about whatever it is that we're facing. Because for the last several decades, there's been study after study after study on this, and it turns out that what venting does is actually helps to perpetuate our negative emotions, and in fact, will even escalate them within us to where we become more angry, more frustrated, more stressed out than we were at the beginning. Is it just me that I'm speaking to right now, or is there somebody else out there say amen? So um, we think that venting is helpful, but it's not. Why? Because of this thing called neuroplasticity. That's a cool word. That caught my attention. 
And the way it, it, it was explained to me, because I'm not a psychologist, was it's like your mind has hiking trails, right? Okay, now I'm there. I'm with you now. But the idea being like, as we work through things, we, we have essentially in our brain all these paths we could take to confront challenges or problems that we face. But the paths that we walk over and over again, it's like you're out for a hike. And the ones that get tread on the most are very clear. The brush is all put to the side. It's just a dirt path. You know exactly where you're headed. And so venting is like walking that path of anxiety and frustration and stress and anger again and again and again and again until finally it's like you can't see any other paths. You don't see the path of hope. You don't see the path of constructive conversation. You don't see the path of resolving things directly. All you see is the path of isolation and frustration and anxiety and stress. Neural plasticity, hiking trails in our brains. Jesus asks us to consider if the most common path we walk is directly to each other instead, how might that shape our community? Rather than taking the path to my triangulation partners, rather than taking the path to the gossip train around the room, rather than taking the path to vent again and again and again, what if the path that we constantly took was the path directly to one another? How might that shape and form a firm foundation for a community of faith? Honesty, being direct in our honesty with each other. The second value I see communicated is humility. The word listen is used four times in five verses. Listen, Jesus says. Listen. Ask them to listen. If they listen, you've won them over. If they don't listen, then try this. And then if they don't listen, then try this. Listen, listen, listen. Listening is a tricky thing because sometimes we think we're listening when we're really not. Is anybody else like me that when you're in the heat of an argument, you're not really listening to process or to understand, but you are simply listening so you know how best to respond back? Right? You might not even be hearing what they're saying. All you're doing is formulating your bullet-pointed three-attack-point strategy of how you're going to hit them back harder, right? Maybe that's just me. If it's not just me, say amen, somebody. Okay, good. Whew. I was worried I was the only sinner in the room this morning. So listening is a tricky thing because what it invites us to do is to be humble, which is not something that comes naturally to most people. To be humble is to be open, to be open to the idea that maybe I'm wrong about something, or maybe I don't see it the way someone else does. Maybe they see it differently than I do, and maybe I need to try and see it the way they do. Maybe rather than defending my ego or my honor or whatever I think it is that I need to defend, maybe I simply need to sit and say, wow, that is hard to hear, but I need to take time to process that. Can we talk again in two days? Maybe listening means not trying to respond in the moment. And even naming that, I don't know what to say to that right now, but I want to take that seriously. When can we meet again? Because I want to hear you. Um, just before this passage, Jesus talks about the lost sheep and the little ones. In Matthew 18, Jesus is talking about Christian community, and he talks about if anyone leads the little ones astray, not just meaning children like Elias, whom we saw a moment ago, but, but the people who are newer to their faith, anyone who, who causes them to stumble, who, who, who makes it harder for them to walk early in their faith, he says, it's better for you to just tie a stone around your neck and jump in the ocean. Right? Jesus doesn't mince words in chapter 18. 
And then he says, there's this flock, the, the church is like a flock, and, and there's this one sheep out of the hundred that has made its way off over yonder, and, and maybe it's because it got lost on its own, or maybe it's because it got kicked out by the other sheep, but the shepherd hears, listens, hears that one sheep way over there, and makes the journey by himself to go find that one lost sheep, because that's how God is. That's the way community is designed to work in this kingdom of God, is where the one sheep, that one voice crying out, that's the one we listen to. That's the one that we have to center ourselves on. Listening invites humility. Maybe the 99 don't have everything figured out. Maybe that one is saying something that we need to hear. Maybe even though I always assume that my actions are righteous, maybe I still hurt people and I need to know that and take that seriously. We always judge ourselves by our intentions and others by their actions, right? But listening allows us to hear the way that our actions are actually interpreted. Humility can be the path from harm to healing because when we listen, when we really listen and we allow that knee-jerk defensive reaction to quiet for a moment and we receive probably a really hard truth, if we allow that to do its work and we allow the Holy Spirit into that moment and into that space, that could actually transform us in a powerful way. I think that's why Jesus is so committed to this idea because Jesus knows that he's asking a bunch of imperfect people to come together and to live in God's love. And he knows it's not going to work out great all the time. He knows that all these people are imperfect. They're going to make mistakes and they're going to hurt each other like crazy. And he knows the best way to grow is by being in relationship with one another. We'll talk about that again in just a second. So in conflict, am I listening to receive or simply preparing to respond? Am I allowing myself to hear with a humble heart so that I can confess and repent and to shift from harm to healing. I'm preaching to myself today, gang. Value number three is solidarity. Notice that the circle of speaking expands each time. First, it's the individual's responsibility to take it to an individual. But then very quickly, they're asked to get not, triangle, not triangles, right? They're not asked to get messengers, but people who can stand as allies with them, as advocates in solidarity with them to say, hey, we need to hear this person because they say they're being harmed. We need to hear this person because they're trying to express their truth. And that circle grows and grows within the church. One thing that I notice is that Jesus is calling our attention to the lower and to the lost in the passages before. And so the implication is that this person speaking up is not someone who's on equal footing with the person they're speaking up to, right? They're literally speaking up a social hierarchy. And maybe the person not hearing them doesn't need to hear them because socially they have no responsibility to hear them. And so maybe the reason this circle keeps expanding is because this person is lower or lost or not listened to as often. And so they need more and more people to show solidarity with them to say, I may not see it the way you do, but I hear you. I'm listening. I may not share your experience, but I hear you. I'm listening. I, I'm going to trust the truth that you're telling me. It's not my job to tell you, no, you're experiencing that wrong. It's my job to say, I hear you. Can I stand with you? Let's bring some resolution to this. Now, I don't think, quite frankly, the church has been all that good at solidarity in our history and even especially in our most recent history. Here's some time for honesty. You know, the church in America is in decline. That's not a secret. No one's surprised to know this. And I think a big reason why is because people my age and younger have grown up watching a church that has had the option to listen to the lower and the lost and the least and has chosen not to. We've witnessed abuse after abuse occur and be cried out against within the church. And I'm using capital C church because my friends, folks that don't go to church, do not distinguish between Methodists, Baptists, Presbyterians, Pentecostals, Catholics. They don't care. 
right? We are all one body. And they see a church that is not in solidarity with the lowest and the lost. They see a church that does not respond or try to hear people who are lower down the social ladder. They see a church that when it's called out on its abuses or its imperfections, chooses to close its ears and shut its eyes and keep walking forward as though nothing is wrong and something is wrong. Now, I'm proud to be a part of a church that I believe is doing its best to try to show solidarity. Um, I'm, I'm proud of the people that you are and the way that, that you try to live into this. And I also want to acknowledge that we're not a perfect people and we're still walking that journey together. What I do want to say is that I think that this solidarity piece is critically important because it is a witness that is louder than anything we could possibly say. It doesn't matter what I preach on Sunday morning. It doesn't matter how many hammers we swing or, or, or how many nonprofits we volunteer at. At the end of the day, when people cry out about harm and the general public sees no sign of solidarity from the church or, or a limited sign of solidarity from the church, that's the biggest witness we could offer. Because the world hears the one. The world hears the lowest and the lost. And they're wondering if we do. You with me? The last value I see here is commitment. Now, that last one might feel like a, a, a kick in the gut, um, no doubt. Um, in fact, as we keep reading, uh, the, the steps we'll see at the end, there's a very real chance of someone being cast out, right? Jesus says, okay, and then you bring it to the whole church, and if they are still being so stubborn that they don't want to listen, they can't hear what they have done, then, in his language, you treat them like a Gentile and a tax collector. Okay, <laughs> translate that for me, Scott. You, you treat them like someone who's no longer a part of this community. Now, that's an, probably another sermon for another day. W what I want to say for this piece is that you might hear that and go, oh, good, Jesus is giving me an out, right? So when all this falls apart, like I already know it will, right? We prejudge that conflict's not going to go well. When all this falls apart, then I can just say, yeah, get them out of here. That'll, that's great. Jesus is giving me a get-out-of-jail-free card on this conflict thing. And then he keeps talking. He keeps talking and he says three things that I think are important. First, he says, whatever you bind or loose on earth is bound or loosened in heaven. I don't think that he's saying that we have control over individuals' eternal salvation. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. I think what he's saying is that the stakes are high. When we talk about how we deal with or, or ignore conflict, the way that we resolve it in a healthy or unhealthy way, I think he's saying that there are reverberations, there are ripple effects that you can't even see. It's not just about the two individuals at the center or the three or four, but it's actually something that is wherever you bound or loose on earth, it's bound or loosened in places you can't see. It's bound and loosened in ways that you, that you won't see, that you'll never see. And this stuff matters because conflict or the inability to resolve it, that's going to either bring a great blessing or a great harm. That There is no choice of ignoring it altogether. It's going to do something. The question is, what are you going to do about it? The second thing he says, where two or more are gathered, there I'll be with them in presence. My spirit will be, will be with them. Matthew's gospel is also the one that names Jesus as Emmanuel, God with us. Matthew's Jesus is extremely committed to the idea that God is committed to relationships, the transforming power of relationships. This is not a four-step process of how to kick someone out of the church. This is a four-step process on how to remain committed to the really messy, really difficult, and very necessary human relationships in this world. Because I believe that Jesus believes these relationships are ultimately what transform us the most, the way that we get to know God through one another. 
And lastly, there's this parable that follows. Just to underscore, Peter says, okay, so Jesus, how many times do you want me to forgive people? Like, I don't know, seven times. And Jesus says, no, 70 times seven. And Peter starts carrying the one, goes, okay, 420, got it. And um, Jesus, say what? 409. I was an English major, Kenton. <laughs> what do you want from me? That's why we have an accountant on staff. All right. 490. You got more forgiving to do, Kenton. Good job. You gave yourself more work. I was just going to go for 420. So anyways, um, what was I talking about, Kenton? <laughs> Forgiveness. There's this parable. Just when you think that Jesus is like, okay, and this is how you kick people out of church. He goes, no, there's this parable. And, and this servant was forgiven by his king. And then he went out and he tried to get an, a fellow servant to pay back his debts. And the king got angry and was like, what are you doing, man? I just forgave your debts. You're going to go hold that over somebody else's head. And the point is this. We have all been forgiven. We have all been bound and loosened in ways that we can't see. Ways that certainly we do know. I bet if I were to ask you what's a time that you were forgiven in a way that changed your life, you could probably name that. And there's probably also 10 other times that you didn't know someone forgave you in a quiet place where it was bound or loosened in heaven. And Jesus's point is this. If we are going to be on this earth and we're going to be committed to relationships, we have to lead with a forgiving and reconciling foot forward. We have to go into conflict not saying, I know how this is going to go. This is going to go terribly. But rather than, I hope I know how this is going to go. And this is going to be the kind of work that helps to usher in the kingdom of God. One relationship, one person at a time. If I can resolve this with them, then maybe we can resolve this with one another. Right? That's what Jesus is trying to communicate. And so, my friends, when you look at, when you look at conflict, you might think that avoiding it is a solution. And, and I'll, just, I'll just say, quite frankly, it's not. And I say that as someone who loves to avoid conflict. Um, I, I, my mom taught me growing up to pick my battles with a brother that was nine years younger than me. Pick your battles, pick your battles. And as an adult, sometimes I think I try to pick as few battles as possible. And that's just not the faithful foot forward. Um, because the reality is we're not choosing to avoid conflict. We're really just choosing to avoid possible resolution. When we choose not to walk directly to the person that we're angry with, that we're grieving with, that we're frustrated by. When we choose instead to turn to the triangles and the telephones, when we choose not to be humble and not to hear what someone is trying to say to us as hard as it may be to hear, when we, when we choose not to stand with those whom we hear but we think, I don't know, that's not my fight. When we choose to not be committed to relationships as hard and as messy as they can be, we're not really avoiding conflict. We're just avoiding the possible resolution and really the transformation. I want to leave you with an image. It, it, it comes from the 15th century in Japan. There was a shogun named Ashikaga Yoshimasa. And he was a shogun in Japan. He had a favorite Chinese tea bowl. And the story goes that one day it broke. It was his favorite bowl in the world. And he sent it off to be repaired. And it came back to him with staples. In it, That was a, the common way of repairing ceramics back then, to have these gold staples placed to form it back together. But he wasn't satisfied with the way that it looked, so he commissioned his artisans, and he said, I need you to find a new way to repair ceramics. So they did. They came up with this form of repair that you now see, this art form called kitsugi. And what it is, is it uses a lacquer and metallic powder to not only repair the ceramics, but to actually draw attention to the repair itself. This traditionally uses this gold-colored lacquer. 
and it's an art form meant to express the, the beauty and the brokenness and impermanence of life. And it's actually the repair itself that makes it so beautiful, not trying to hide it or to mask it, but to draw attention to the cracks that were there but have now healed. Friends, I wonder if that's an image for us in Christian community, to have to hold ourselves like a kintsugi bowl, to realize that even though we love this thing, it's going to break at times. And yeah, we could staple it back together, but maybe there's a better way. Maybe there's a new way that we've not yet considered. And maybe rather than trying to ignore the cracks or try to make it seem like they never existed, instead we could acknowledge that even though it's broken, it is beautiful. And even though we are breaking at times, that it's the repair itself that could be the greatest blessing of all. And so whatever conflicts you're facing this week, I hope that the words of Jesus and the image of a kintsugi bowl could offer some inspiration to be direct and honest, to be humble, to show solidarity, and most of all, to remain committed to this thing we call relationship that is so hard and yet so transformative. May it ever be so. Amen.